0: good morning how's everyone if you have your bibles if you could turn to uh revelation chapter i mean exodus chapter 20 getting ahead of myself exodus chapter 20 i appreciate that uh if you do not have a message outline you get that right out the center doors right out there at the ministry counter we're in a series called the commands of god we're studying going through the ten commandments and let me give you a little bit of background we haven't i haven't done this for a few weeks Uh, The the children of Israel had been in bondage in Egypt for over 400 years. God God is going to deliver them from the land of Egypt out of their bondage by bringing the plagues upon the Egyptians. God delivered them by his grace, the Bible says. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 4, it says, You yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings, and I brought you out to myself, is what he says. And God brought the children of Israel out. Uh, They were in it just for the ride. And God said, I brought you out, and you never were ever supposed to forget this. He said, I brought you out so I could draw you near. He said, we've got this relationship. God established a relationship with him. And so now the children of Israel are now three months out from uh, the bondage in Egypt. They're at the Mount Sinai, Mount Horb, or sometimes called the Mountain of God. They're at the base of the mountain, and God's going to come down on a cloud at the top of the mountain, and Moses is going up to meet with God. And God says to Moses, Moses, tell the people don't come close to the mountain, don't touch the mountain, or they will surely die. It's a picture of God's holiness that's unapproachable. Stand back, God is unapproachable. Don't come close. That's the picture of the Old Covenant. The New Covenant that we have in the New Testament presented to us is come close through Jesus. That's the picture. Two different pictures. In Mount Sinai, don't come close. God is unapproachable. In the New Covenant, God is approachable. Come close to God through Jesus. But he tells him, don't come close. And on the third day, God said he would come down, and he came down in a cloud. The Bible says the mountain began to shake. There was thunder and lightning. The trumpet blast got louder and louder. And the Bible says the whole mountain was shaken violently. And the people at the base of the mountain were terrified what was happening there, what they were seeing and what they were hearing. And God says, I am your God, and you are my people. And we've got this relationship. Rebellion always precedes rules, rules, Uh, If you don't, rebellion always precedes rules if you don't have a relationship, right? It always happens. We always have to have this relationship first, otherwise rebellion takes place. That relationship was established with those people three months earlier when God brought them out of the bondage of Egypt. And now you are made in my image, God is saying, therefore you are my representatives here on this earth. There's a relationship. I am your God. You are my people. Here's some commandments for you to follow, God is going to give them. These are responsibilities, because you're my representatives here on this earth, and I want you to represent me really, really well. So it begins with the relationship, and then it goes to responsibilities, and then it goes to representation. And God says, this is how I want you to live for me, because when people see you, they ought to see me, is what God is saying. And he gives them the Ten Commandments. And they will see me if you follow these Ten Commandments, is what he's saying. You'll be different from all the other nations in the world. And so the first four commandments that he gives on the, the one slab are vertical. They're a relationship with God, and they're talking about, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not misuse the name, the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. The last six commandments on another tablet are a relationship with one another, it's talking about. Honor your father and mother. You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not covet. Today we're going to look at the ninth commandment. We're almost done. We only got one more next week. We're looking at the ninth commandment. So if you can turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, verse 16, I'd appreciate that. Let's officially read it, what he says here. He said, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. The Heidelberg Catechism, you've been hearing me say that a lot in this series. Heidelberg Catechism is an ancient old teaching mechanism where they would use questions and provide answers to help people learn theology. And when the question was presented, how do we honor God by obeying the ninth command, this is what it says. God's will is that I must not give false testimony against anyone, twist no one's words, not gossip or slander, nor condemn or join in condemning anyone without a hearing and without a just cause. Rather, I must avoid all lying and deceit of every kind. These are devices the devil himself uses, and they will call down on me, God's intense anger. I must love the truth, speak and confess it honestly, and do what I can to defend and promote my neighbor's honor and reputation. So, is there a place we can see this lived out in the New Testament? Is it a place where we can go to the Word of God and see someone obeying the ninth commandment? Is there a place where we can go in the Word of God and see someone disobeying the ninth commandment? There is. We can go to one of John's writings. If you go to Third John, it's toward in the New Testament it's toward the back of the new testament the very end of your bible uh, it's the third and last book you have revelation then jude then you're going to find third john there and the apostle john wrote this book this little letter he wrote and let me give you a little bit of setting he wrote the letter and wrote it to a man by the name of Gaius as you're finding in this book to encourage him to welcome christian brothers into the church and show them hospitality he was also writing him to warn him about another man who was pro, uh, who was opposing Christian brothers coming into church, and he was bringing church discipline on those who welcomed those Christian brothers who came into the church. Let's begin reading in verses 1 through 4 here. John starts off, the elder, and I want to stop there because it's important. The elder, he says, John doesn't focus on his apostolic authority. He could. He was an apostle. But he focuses more on, I'm an elder. I'm a shepherd of the flock. His concern was, I have a love and care for the flock for the congregation and I'm writing to you as an elder who loves you and is concerned about you that's what he's doing and he goes on and says the elder to my dear friend Gaius whom I love in the truth dear friend he says it twice dear friend i pray that you may enjoy good health that all may go well with you even as your soul is getting along well it may. it gave me great joy to have some brothers come and tell about your faithfulness to the truth and how you continued to walk in the truth I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. I want to give you three actions to practice this morning, if you have your outlines ready. Let me give you the first one. Encourage those walking in the truth. Encourage those. In these verses, John the Apostle uses the word truth four times. What does truth mean? Truth is something that is certain, something you can rely on. It's reliable. It's something that isn't changing, something you can count on. Truth is a divine reality or revelation that we have. And you see that in the Apostle John's writings, you would see that he implies truth as right doctrine and right conduct, as truth. But how did the Apostle John understand truth when we look at his life? The Apostle John, remember, he's the same John that was one of Jesus' inner circles. It's Peter, James, and John. He's one of those. It was also the same John that when Jesus was dying on the cross, he looked out at John, and he says, John, take care of my mother. It's the same John that when when, uh, John was on the island of Patmos in exile, Jesus gave him the revelation. It was the same John that understood that truth is just not principles and precepts, but he understood truth as an encounter with the person, an experience with the person, the person of truth, Jesus Christ. So what was Gaius doing that caused John the Apostle to respond like this to him? Well, he was showing love and hospitality to others. Let's notice it in verse 5 through 8. He says, Dear friend, you are faithful in what you are doing for the brothers, even though they are strangers to you. They have told the church about your love. You would do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. It was for the sake of the name that they went out, receiving no help from the pagans. We ought, therefore, to show hospitality to such men so we may work together for the truth. So we can see there were some traveling missionaries, maybe pastors or teachers, we we'll are call them missionaries, some traveling missionaries who John refers to as brothers. They were believers in Jesus Christ. They were preaching the gospel message. They were not false prophets, not false teachers, but they were missionaries. And they experienced Gaius, but they were strangers to him. They did not know Gaius. Gaius did not know them. And they went back. Uh, after they experienced Gaius and told John of their encounter with Gaius and they shared their firsthand experience with Gaius was love and hospitality, even though they were strangers, even though they did not know Gaius and Gaius did not know them. He treated them with love, love and hospitality. When we show love and hospitality to other people, even though they are strangers, they get, they get an opportunity to encounter the person of truth, of Jesus Christ living in and through us. They may be strangers to you, But your love and your hospitality, they're experiencing Jesus, the truth, the truth that lives in us, and we're living out the truth. And that truth lives in us if you know Christ as your Savior, if you trust Him as your Savior. How can we tell if somebody is walking in the truth? It's by their actions. That's why the Apostle John is encouraging Gaius, I can tell you are walking in the truth. How could he say that? How could John say that? By Gaius' actions, by what he was doing. Another way we can see that people are living out the truth, is the word of God is truth. When you and I obey the word of God, we're walking in the truth. When you and I obey the commands of God from the Bible, we are walking in the truth. When you and I are walking uh, and doing the will of God in our life, and the will of God is congruent with the word of God, we are walking in the truth in our lives. So let me ask you a question. Does your actions prove that you're walking in the truth this morning, the things that you do? Do your actions match what you believe? are you obedient to God's Word? Are your actions matching what you profess to be true in your own life? Profess of the gospel message. I remember there's a several, several years ago, there was two men that I that I knew who came to the reality they were not walking in truth. They knew Jesus Christ as their Savior, but their lives have not been radically changed. And they finally, when they were radically changed, I remember one of them came and shared that he came home to his wife and he says, I'm going to my job. I'm going to find a new job, and we're going to sell our house because we're living way above our means. He says, I've got to work all these long hours to pay for this house and all of our stuff, and it's take me a time away from the family. Take me a time away from the children, and I've got to work all these long hours. I don't have time to serve God in the church. He says, so I'm not honoring God with my life, and I remember his wife coming to church. She was on staff at the church that I was at at that time, and she came and says, you know, I think my husband is losing it and she was crying, and she was all upset. But sure enough, he found another job, and they sold their big house. It sold in just a very few days. It was a very nice house. They ended up selling their big cars and bought smaller cars, less expensive cars. And weeks later, I, I got a little note from her, and she said to me, he says, my husband was right. We're so much happier now, she said, living for God. She said, I think we're honestly walking in the truth for the very first time in our life. She said, we're serving we're growing in the Lord, being able to help others. And notice the opportunities to help others. She says, we're finally living within our means. See, they had bought a house by her parents in uh, the state of Washington, and her parents were in her elderly years. So they let their help and take care of her parents. So they were walking in the truth. They were living out the truth in her life, not only fulfilling the ninth commandment, but also fulfilling the fifth commandment, but honoring her parents. So we see people that are walking in the truth. We need to encourage them. We need to come alongside. Hey, I see you walking in the truth. I want to encourage you to keep doing it. When someone shares something about how they're walking in truth, they're making a sacrifice, we need to be encouragers of them. What else does John write in this epistle, in this 3rd John? Let's look at verse 9 and 10. He writes something else. He says, I wrote to the church, but by, by Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will have nothing to do with us. So if I come... I will call attention to what he is doing, gossiping maliciously about us. Not satisfied with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. The second action to practice is confront slanderers. And please listen to me as I'm sharing this. I don't want anyone to misunderstand me. Can you imagine these traveling missionaries comes to this church, and they're experiencing love and hospitality from Gaius, and everything's wonderful. But it's not from Diotrephes, who was so domineering. As a matter of fact, he was bearing false witnesses against John and others, and, and these missionaries, he was gossiping all about them. And he was hunting down, he was hurting people, who was trying to help them and kick them out of the church, this man who was gossiping maliciously, he was violating the ninth command, and we see that. Yet Gaius and, and Diotrephes were, were from the same congregation. How can that be? Both of them from the same congregation. The Apostle John said he wrote to the church. We don't have that letter. Perhaps Diotrephes destroyed that letter. We don't know. But his content is not difficult to imagine by what John wrote to Gaius. We can assume they had written to the church. He says, I want you to show these missionaries love and support, love and encouragement, love and hospitality, and probably even support them to send them on their way on their missionary trip. Uh, Diotrephes chose to thwart John's intention, either by suppressing the letter or opposing the letter as it came up before the congregation. It also threatened to expel, expel anybody in the church that would, help, that would welcome these missionaries or help them or show them hospitality. In fact, it seems like he already kicked some out of the church already. So why was Diotrephes opposing the Apostle John? It's not really clear, the passage doesn't tell us. But John writes that Diotrephes loves to be first. could simply reflect the personal rivalry, Or it could reflect an inflated authoritarian ego that he had. Uh, Maybe Dr. Feast was troubled by John's continued influence of the church that he was leading. I'm leading this, and why is this man having anything to say about what I'm doing? Or Dr. Feast, if he's a younger man, maybe he's kind of threatened by John being an elder man. John was probably in his 90s by now at this time, thinking John is old, and he doesn't know what's best for this congregation. John is not here, and I am, and I know what's best this congregation. Whatever it was, we are not told what it was. Clearly, Diotrephes was in the wrong, the Bible tells us. He was in the wrong, what he was doing. John says in verse 10, so if I come, I will call attention to what he is doing, gossiping maliciously about us. John planned on confronting Diotrephes, perhaps one-on-one, to confront him, and if he didn't repent, then take it to the church, what he planned on doing, what it seems like. Uh, there seems to be an implication that Diotrephi's actions were not well known about the church. Perhaps John thought that if the church knew, they would remove this man from his position. So he was going to confront him. So how do we explain, though, John's sharp words in his response on the part of love? Because in John's writings, if you know about John's writing, the Gospel of John and 1 John, he talks an awful lot about love. Do they represent a contradiction to his teaching? In other words, can we say, if I love you, then I can't confront you. Those two go together. So if I have a love for someone, I can't confront them because i got to love them, right? We have to understand that John probably sensed, as he was watching what was happening, the very nature of the gospel was being threatened there by this hypocritical conduct, the one who was the minister of the gospel, what Diotrephes was doing. Diotrephes did a few things that made John respond that way. Let me share them with you. First, Diotrephes' actions were reprehensible by any standard gossiping maliciously about John and others in any standard that is wrong we agree right oh we don't we agree right gossiping is wrong amen it's wrong in any standard right second denying hospitality to the missionaries and not supporting them and help them on their missionary journey just because they came from John they were guilty by association because you're from John I don't want anything to do with you that's what Dr. is are saying probably the worst thing that he was doing he were against those who were trying to walk in the truth in the church, who were trying to show love and support to these uh, missionaries. And because they disobeyed Diotrephes, he was ready to kick them out of the church. And such contradiction of the gospel by action and by word and deed it could not be condoned and cannot be ignored. They had to do something about this. Silence on their part and to face of total rejection of the life of the gospel and, and the truth of the gospel meant that, they, they they could not just look the other way. They would be just as hypocritical as Diotrephes' own actions. In other words, to see what he was doing by opposing people who are trying to show love and hospitality to others, and they watch what he's doing. If they just turned their backs or they ignored it or let him do it, they would be guilty as Diotrephes. So they had to confront him. They had to confront Diotrephes. But truth without love is no truth at all. So they had to watch what they're doing. Diotrephes was condemned not because he violated sound teaching regarding the nature and person and character of Jesus Christ. He was condemned because his life was a contradiction to the gospel itself that he professed. This condition required attention by John and the congregation. They had to do something. They had to confront him. When we see someone who knows Jesus Christ as their Savior and they're slandering or they're uh, gossiping about us or others in love we have to confront them to stop it. Because their life is a contradiction to the truth of the gospel itself. It is a contradiction to their own testimony. It's a contradiction to the person of truth, Jesus Christ. So we have to confront them in love. But it always, always has to be in love to restore them. That's the reason we do it. We want to restore them. The Apostle Paul writes in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, Brothers, as someone is caught in sin, you who are, sp- you who are spiritual should restore him gently. So we don't confront them to say, I gotcha. We don't confront them to humiliate them. We don't confront them to say, I told you so. We don't confront them to say, I'm right, you're wrong. If that's your motive, you're not the person to confront the person. Always remember that. In confrontation, that's in any area. If you're going to confront someone, it's always to restore. If yours is always to say, I told you so, I'm right, you're wrong, to get them, you are not the person to confront. It will not come out right. It doesn't work that way. It has to always be about restoration, coming alongside of the person and disciple the person, help them to become more like Jesus, about restoring them, be a solution to the problem, not to add to the problem by gossiping and making comments to them like that. So, of course, that person can respond in in, in anger and denial and not repent, and that's not good when they do that. That happens. It happens quite a bit, but we cannot control how people respond to it, right? Nor should we not do it because the person may not respond the right way, or they may get upset with me, or may get angry with us. We still have to do it because it's, it's, it, it's, uh, it's the nature of the gospel is threatened by what they're doing. And not only that, their actions are contradiction to the truth of the gospel itself, and it's a contradiction to their own testimony. So we have to confront them, but we have to do it in love. So this causes us to ask ourselves the question, am I gossiping or slandering against others? Am I talking behind other people's backs? You know, um, we've all been guilty of this. Every one of us in this room have done this, right? Every one of us have done this at some time. And sometimes we say, we say, you know, I'm not really gossiping because what I'm sharing about them is really truth. So that's not gossip. Gossip when I'm saying something false about them. No, that's slander. See, if you don't have anything good to say about somebody, don't say, it, don't say anything. Because when you're saying something, even though it's the truth and it's not good about them, you're actually slandering their character and hurting their character and their reputation. So don't say anything about them. Your solution is, if you're going to be a solution to the problem, you come alongside in love. To confront them in love, to restore them is restoration. Not talk bad behind their back, even if it's truth. The only time we're going to talk uh, behind people's backs if we're going to build them up and encourage others about them. Say good things about them, we can do that. But anything that's going to be negative, to tear them down, that's gossip, that's slander. We should not do. We should not do, okay? And some people think that. But if you're here today and you say, boy, I have gossip and I slander, we've all done that. Confess it to God. The same God who gave us these Ten Commandments that we all look at, and the surface of the commandments, if you've seen everyone that we've looked at, we can say, oh, I can write that one on, I've got that one, it's no problem. Then we get underneath the surface and say, whoa, Especially when we read what Jesus has to say in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthews 5, 6, and 7, where he kind of elevates them, elevates all the commandments and says, but this is what I say, that it's just not an action, it's thought and motive and, and the things that we say. He says, it raises the bar, is what Jesus does. When we look at these commandments, we see that every one of us have violated these commandments. And when we look at that, and we say, Well, I violated all the commandments, but the same God who gave us the commandments also gave us 1 John 1. 9. And I share this each week, especially as we're going through this commandments, because it says there, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just, and He will forgive us our sins, and He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God makes a promise to us that if we break these commandments, that if we confess it, He will forgive us. That's a promise. Not maybe, not sometimes. He will forgive us all of our sins, and cleanse us from every act of unrighteousness, what he says. So we want to confess it, because we don't want anything to taint the gospel, do we? We don't want anyone to taint our testimony, so we want to confess it. When we, when people know you're a Christian, they watch how you live, and they look at what you're doing. They watch the things that you do. You're kind of under a microscope by others, right? If you're in your workplace and people know you're a Christian, they kind of look at you and say, hey, look at them, and you are God's representative. And when people see you, they need to see Jesus. They need to see Jesus living his life in and through you. When I was younger and I lived in my parents' house, before I went out with my friends, my father used to say, remember, Doug, you're an ask You You represent the family. Don't do wrong. Honor that name wherever you go. And the same way with God, we are his representative. Wherever we go, don't dishonor his name. Bring glory to his name. Build that name up so when people see you, they see Jesus. That's what they're supposed to say. We are his representatives. We are made in the image of God. And that word image that we get way back in Genesis is representation. We are his representation. Different from all other creation. We are made in the image of God. Represent him well, he says. We, we need to ask ourselves as we look at this, are you diatrophies, gossiping and not walking in the truth and slandering? Or are you gayest walking in the truth, uh, showing love and hospitality to others? Which one are you? The third action to practice, he says, imitate those who uphold truth. Imitate those who uphold truth. Let's read verse 11 and 12. He says, dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Anyone who does, not, anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone, anyone who does what is evil is not seen God. Demetrius is well spoken of by everyone and even by the truth itself. We also speak well of him. And you know our, that our testimony is true. In John's writings, I talked about this a few weeks ago, that in John's writings, especially in 1 John, it's about fellowship, and it's about uh, uh, having a relationship with God. And, and really, he has tests in his test in his writings. How do you know if you're a believer in Jesus Christ? And he gives tests. Right here, he's giving a test right here in verse 11. How do you know if you're a believer in Jesus Christ? Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. He tells us right there, how do you know? If I'm doing good... I should be from God. If I'm not doing good, I'm saying I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. I need to check my heart because I shouldn't be doing evil. I should be doing good. But John's reaction to Diatrophes is surprising here. When you look at the passage, instead of expressing revenge, John promotes goodness. The apostle John admonishes Gaius not to imitate evil, but to imitate what is good. Maybe John had expected di- Diatrophes and his supporters to exert pressure on Gaius they kind of uh, uh, stop and give up their support of John and his followers and those missionaries and gave where they have no option to take a stand on principle. We'd have to stand on principle. Listen, to give to pressure against one's conviction is to submit to evil. We have to stand on principle when that principle is God's word. And if I'm standing on principle and the principle of God's word, and God's word says as I'm standing, to compromise or to give in to someone else means I'm giving in to evil. And I'm not doing God's will. I'm not following his words. We have to be careful. Why does John appeal to imitate or saying to imitate? Because it's the nature of God's revelation that truth, love, and righteousness have been modeled. First by Jesus, the perfect model, and then by those who know Jesus Christ as their Savior and are following God's commands, it has been modeled. Humankind does not have in its nature and a dependable standard by which to judge itself. We don't. So our standard always has to be God and his word. That's the standard for which love, truth, and righteousness are are, are absolute attributes. You and I cannot look in and say, well, I'm a follower of Jesus, so I use my conscience. It leads and guides me what I do. So I just, you know, ask myself, what should I do? Because my conscience leads me. Listen, your conscience can be easily influenced by your flesh by your desires and your wants, and so we can compromise very easy. Our conscience uh, can easily be influenced by the world. It happens very easily in all of us. Unless our conscience is aligned with God and his word, that means we have to be in God and his word and study in God in his word, and then we can trust our conscience. But we always come back and just say, well, I feel, because so many people like to say, I feel I should do this, or I think God wants me to do this. No, go to God's word and find out, God, what do you want me to do? What does the Word of God say? It might not dre- directly answer something going on in your life, but it gives you precepts and principles to follow, to be guided by that. So we can't trust our conscience unless our conscience is filled with God and His Word. That means I've got to be in His Word. I've got to be in Bible studies. I've got to be submitted to God in His Word. it yield my heart and mind to the Holy Spirit. So don't just trust your conscience, but let this be the standard, God in His Word, and everything we do. I might say I'm going to make this decision, but let me go to God's Word and let me pray and ask God, God, what do you want me to do? Don't trust your feelings, your feelings alone. They will lead you astray. So for those of us who know Jesus Christ, our Savior, who says, I'm a follower of Christ, who are in Christ, these same attributes, love, truth, and righteousness, have become available to all of us who love God, who know Jesus Christ, and have a desire to follow him. They're available to all of us. To show them in our lives, to show that we're from God. All goodness comes from from God. When, uh, When goodness proceeds from our lives, It demonstrates that we are in Christ, and we are being changed from the inside out. That's what God wants. That we are being changed from the inside out. And when we're changed from the inside out, our actions will show on the outside. God has changed us by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what he wants to happen. In verse 12, the apostle John brings up a man by the name of Demetrius. Demetrius had a character that was so consistent with the gospel message that every person who encountered him, the Bible says, They encountered truth. Think about that. Every person encountered and they encountered truth. Remember the apostle John understood truth, not just as precepts and principles. He uses truth seven times in these 12 verses. Why? Because he understood truth as an encounter with the person, the person of Jesus Christ. That's what truth was to John. For some reason, John felt it very important for Gaius to know and trust Demetrius. Apparently Demetrius was a a supporter of John's. Some believe that Demetrius was the bearer of this letter of 3 John, and also possibly one of these missionaries that was here. Nevertheless, John honors Demetrius in three ways. He says three good things about him. He says he is well spoken of by everyone. He is well spoken of truth by by truth itself. John also speaks well of him. The second way seems kind of strange. If someone would tell you uh, you're spoken well by truth itself, what does that mean? Some believe, and they see truth as a personification. So truth would be God, would be Jesus, could be the gospel, could be revelation. But it seems more likely this truth of the gospel in Demetrius' life, what it's talking about, Demetrius is walking in the truth, simply walking in truth. that he's, his, his life is, matches his profession, confession that he's making about Christ, matches the gospel message. In Paul's terms, he manifests the fruit of the Spirit. In John's terms, he lives the life of love wherever he goes. He loves everyone, shows hospitality. Diotrephes tried to command respect. Demetrius earned respect. People loved him wherever he went because of the way he lived his life. The phrase in verse 12 we see here, and you know that our testimony is true, it reminds us what John wrote in the Gospel of John, chapter 21, verse 24, where he says, This is the disciple who testifies to these things, who wrote them down, We know that his testimony is true. So what do we want to leave here with this? Let me give you the three things, the three points here, so we don't forget them. Encourage those that are walking in the truth. When we see that in others, let's encourage them. Confront slanders, but be careful before you confront the slander on the outside. You confront the slander on the inside. Make sure your motives is pure. And also, uh, imitate those who uphold the truth. In other words, you walk in the truth yourself, that we walk in the truth. Don't slander others. In order to do that, we need to have a relationship with Jesus, right? To do it the way the Bible's talking about, we need to have a relationship with Jesus. We don't know Jesus yet. And you've been hearing me today. You've been listening to these messages online. You've been listening to them several weeks. Boy, you hear these commandments, and maybe you're saying, Ben, I can't obey these commandments. I violated every one of them. Listen, the commandments were given to you and I to let us know that we're sinners, that we've sinned. That's where the commandments were given. The law was given that let you and I know that we're sinners, that we can't hold to God's standard. The Bible says, for all of sinned and fall short of the, the glory of God, fall short of God's standard. We've all fallen short of his standard, every one of us. One sin, we fall short of God's standard of his entrance into heaven, just one sin. And all of us, all of us just fall short of that standard. None of us can enter heaven on our own. None of us can enter heaven on our own good works. None of us. The Bible says that God is good. He's perfect. He's righteous. And he's holy. All those things. There's only one that is good. And it's Jesus Christ. There's only one that meets God's standard. And it is Jesus Christ who came down from heaven. And he went to the cross. And when he went to the cross, he died for your sins and my sins and the sins of the whole world, the Bible says. And he died for all of us. He paid your penalty on the sin on the cross. He was your substitute. He took your place. He paid your sin debt on the cross for you. So you and I now have an opportunity to have a relationship with God the Father. It's through Jesus. Because your sin debt has been paid in full by Jesus. Jesus did that for you on the cross. That's God's grace, what God did for you. Now, you and I have to respond to God's grace, what Jesus did. We do that by faith. When we all come, we have to recognize we're all sinners, right? All of us have sinned. All of us have broken God's commandments. All of us are sinners, the Bible says, and fall short of God's glory. Every one of us in this room. There's two things we need to understand about Jesus. One, that Jesus is God. He's the Son of God. And the second, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. And now you and I have to respond to that by faith, by understanding that I believe what Jesus did for me, that he died on the cross for me and paid the penalty of my sins. And now I accept and trust Jesus as my Savior, that he died for me. Every one of us has to do that at some point in life. Recognize I'm a sinner and that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. If you've never done that, please do that today. If you have questions about that, please see me after the service because that's the most important thing you can do. It decides where you will spend eternity. This life after here, where you will spend eternity forever and ever, is what you do with Jesus. Do you accept him? and you spend eternity with him, or you reject him. If you ignore him and don't do anything about it, it means you reject him, and you will spend an eternity apart from him. This life determines where we're going to spend eternity, this life while we're here on this earth, where we're going to spend eternity, with God or apart from God. And so make sure you put your faith and trust in Jesus, and don't reject him because you don't know about him. First, find out about him, and I would love to take you through the Gospels to help you to understand who he is, to know who he is. For all of us who know Jesus Christ as your Savior, God is saying to all of us, we have this relationship. I'm your God and you're my people. You are my treasured possessions. You are my representatives here on this earth, and this is how I want you to live. You shall not give false uh, testimony against your neighbor. How do we do this? The three points. Encourage those walking in truth. Confront slanders. Imitate those who uphold the truth. Walk in truth yourself. As we go into communion, When you think about God saying, this is how I want you to live, I want you to remember that Jesus Christ is our perfect example of this. He lived perfectly in every way. Jesus came to the earth to fulfill the Father's will. Jesus lived the perfect life to fulfill the Father's will. Jesus went to the cross to fulfill the Father's will. Jesus shed his blood on the cross for you and for me, for the sins of the whole world, to fulfill the Father's will. Jesus did what you and I cannot do on our own. And that is fulfilled the Father's will. And as we take communion, it's a reminder that you and I that the only way that we can be accepted by God, and have be part of the family of God, and have our sins forgiven, and have eternal life, is through Jesus. Is what Jesus did for you and I that He died on the cross for our sins, and he fulfilled, he fulfilled the Father's will for us. Is what Jesus did. He fulfilled it for us, and He took our unrighteousness, our sins and exchanged it for his righteousness when he put our faith and trust in him think about that he took our sins and what he did he gave us his righteousness so now when god looks at us he looks at us that we're right with him as his own son because he looks at us through the blood of jesus we are right with him we are righteous before god that's our standing that's our standing before god we will never forget the cross and what happened there for us it was all for us what jesus did and today, as we take the elements, as we take the, the, the bread, as we take the little the, the little cracker, remember that Jesus says, this represents my body, which I gave for you. Don't ever forget it. As we take the cup, Jesus says, this represents the shedding of blood, which I did for you. Whenever you take this, don't ever forget it. And if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior— We invite you to take communion with us this morning. We're not going to pass the plates. We have three tables set up here. Come and get both cups, one on top of the other. And once we've all received them, we'll take communion together. But let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, come and we we praise you. There is no one like you. You are imperfect in all your ways. You lived out the commandments perfectly. You fulfilled God's will perfectly. You are perfect and righteous and holy and just in everything. And so Lord, we come and recognize we're not. the worst sinners saved by grace, your grace, that you died on the cross for us. And the only way we're accepted by God the Father is through the shed blood of Jesus, that he died on the cross for us. And so Lord, we come humbly before you, remembering Jesus as we take communion this morning. Remembering what you did on the cross for us, that you shed your blood on the cross, you died, you were buried, and you rose from the dead. And we are here to proclaim that, that we believe in Jesus Christ, that you died for our sins, and we trusted you as our Savior. Now, Lord, let each one of us remember that. The only one fulfilled the Father's will was you. None of us could do that. The only one who fulfills these Ten Commandments was you. None of us could do that that we come, Lord, sinners saved by grace, remembering you and all that you did. I ask, Lord, that this morning that we check our hearts and minds, and if there's any sin in our hearts and minds, Lord, we might confess it to you. So as we take this, we might be united with Jesus, we might be united with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, glorify yourselves. May what we do this morning bring you glory and honor as we take this communion together. And Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.